Yeah, I still seem to be moving. He's a mover. He's a shaker. He is John. It must be Tuesday because you're getting one of our informative long episodes. And I'm joined this morning by Derek. Hey, John. How's it going? So... Talk about cars. Ferrari, GTO, Bentley, CRX, and even down to your great granddad's peerless. Welcome to No Driving Gloves, the Car Talk Authority, where experience, knowledge, and controversy share the same seat. Enjoy the ride. Now your hosts. John and Derek. The long episodes, do we consider those our EPs? No, those would be our LPs. LPs. Ah, dang it. I, I'm terrible. I'm not a music. I, I'm, I, I like music, but I'm not a music guy that gets into the depth of what all those, remembering what all those letters mean at the end of albums. But you would think EP would be extended play, LP's long play, but but the EPs are always the short, like the Metallica 598 EP only had four songs on it. Right. Yeah. Oh, well. Or or Dolly Parton Rockstar that just came out a few days ago. That's like 16 albums, but it's still, you know, it's an LP. It's also like $80 on vinyl. You know, I don't know why she had to bring an album out called Rockstar. Everybody knows she is a rock star. Doesn't matter what kind of music she sings, country, bluegrass, gospel, whatever she does, she's a rock star. Well, I think this was her taking advantage of her stardom to do something, a personal project that she was very passionate about. I've heard many interviews because my personal podcast consultant, he actually interviewed Dolly and then. His interview has been on three other podcasts about podcasting, analyzing his interview and his interview skills. It's on the uh, significant others Christmas list. So maybe at some point I will hear it. Nice. Now, on her Christmas list, does she still expect like a, a CD or do you download it onto her? phone how do you do that anymore with an album i would physically do people actually expect an actual like cd album or how does that work now well if i wouldn't have been an idiot years ago and given away or gave away i wouldn't have gave away all of my records because i never bought cassette tapes i I always bought vinyl and then i went straight to cds But about 1998, 99, I gave all of my vinyl to my brother saying, yeah, this technology is old. We'll never use it again. And he's kind of an audiophile and has a very extravagant record player. And that always has. So I gave all that away. I still have a record player, believe it or not, but I don't have any vinyl. And now I can't bring myself to go back buy any vinyl. So if I still had a record player and I wouldn't have done that, 20 years ago, 25 years ago, I would buy it on vinyl and give it to her. But I'm not somebody who likes to buy digital music because it has a tendency to disappear 
if something happens. I've known so many people to lose their entire iTunes account or something. So I would buy it on CD and then rip it to MP3 so that it can be played, you know, on a iPhone or whatever music device. So how I would do it, long story short, I would buy the CD. Okay. Well, I don't know why my why my mind had to ask that question, but it did. Well, no, it's a it's a legitimate question. It's changes in, you know, automotive technology and that even is her car still does have a CD player in it. And one of my cars still has a CD player in it. But here's a question, John. When you buy a collector car or an old car that you're going to drive around and you're thinking about all the things you want to do to it to make it more enjoyable, safer, all the things that I think we're going to talk about on the podcast today, you might want to think about how you're going to play your music in that car. See how I tied that together to the topic? Well, it's nice because some manufacturers, Porsche and uh, Mercedes in particular, now make vintage-looking head units with updated technology where they're Bluetooth-capable. Some of them have CD. Some of them, you know, you could have an auxiliary input. But it looks like the correct Becker unit for your vehicle or such. So even the manufacturers understand people want this stuff. I remember still might even been high school, you could buy, you know, hidden audio systems where they would be in your glove box or something. So you kept the original in your dash. That is a very legitimate question. And it's something people do update in their vehicles. And you might throw that into a safety thing because it alleviate stress it keeps you happier maybe it could also distract you etc so we could you know we could stretch and say it might be a piece of safety in your collector car purchase yeah i mean i wasn't trying to stretch it into safety but i was just trying to you know stretch it into the uh, discussion of things you can do to improve your older classic vehicle that you want to drive on the street, both from a safety and enjoyability aspect. Updating your collector car. What a wonderful topic to have. I think so. So what's the first thing that you do, John, when you buy, or when you used to buy, older vehicles so that you could drive it, maybe as a daily, maybe just as a, a enjoyable cruiser, what, what would you do? I'm trying to think of the last toy cars that I bought. My Mini was bought as a daily driver, but it's a toy car. I, you know, I just did some vinyl graphics and things to it, appearance. My Porsche I bought as a toy car, and I think about the only modification or change I did to it were clear corners and something because that was a current trend at the time. But that car, I always wanted to update the stereo and make it much, much more modern. At the time, Porsche really didn't have their retro stuff, and you couldn't go back. Now, I believe Porsche even offers an upgrade to where I had a uh, 987 Boxster. I believe they even offer an upgrade to the stereo to bring Bluetooth and possibly even CarPlay into that 
I don't know what really. It, it kind of depends on the the car. The Caterham I didn't do anything to. I mean, usually when I buy a collector car, I'm buying newer than you a lot of the time. It has the stuff that I want on it. I would say the biggest thing for me probably is the entertainment system. I want as modern as I can get. So that that's probably the biggest modification that I've done consistently. I don't think that's really where, where we're going. What do you do? Because you are a little bit more involved with, to me, what collector cars and cars that may need some updating. You know, do you pop a uh, updated head unit into your 1919 Chevrolet? Yeah, bust out the old 1930s Philco and uh, throw it in the teens era car. No, you know, honestly, John, I'm, <clears throat> pardon me, I am probably so much of a purist that, you know, I'm, I'm not in the hot rotting world or resto modding, anything like that, where I'm upgrading the horsepower of the engine in any way or the performance of the car. I'm, I'm, I'm really a purist that sticks with originality. I don't tend to do a lot of modifications, updates to the vehicles. I like to keep them the way they are. Example, my 1919 Chevy 490 touring car. I got it running, driving. I make sure the wheels are safe. Obviously, wood, wood spoke wheels, you want to make sure those are safe. But I really don't do any updates to it. One of the big things people ask me is like, oh, these, you know, these early cars don't have seat belts in them. Don't you want to put seat belts in them? No, I don't. Not in open cars <laughs> because you're much safer being thrown or being able to jump out of an open car. If you're in the midst of an accident or realizing that an accident is about to occur, then you are staying with it, mainly because if you stay with the car, there are a lot of pieces of wood and metal that come apart very quickly in an early car that can do a lot of damage. I say seatbelts have always been a scary topic for me. I I totally agree with you, say about an early car. I mean, what's the anchor point for a seatbelt in a wood-framed metal over wood body? Where where would you even yeah, exactly. Where would you even try to anchor it where that it would be remotely beneficial, let alone do you want to be trapped in a car that may be rolling becoming toothpicks all around you? You know, six of one, half a dozen of another and Sometimes that half a dozen of another is a much better option to. Yeah. But what scares me when I was at White Post, it was common to be asked to install seatbelts into vehicles that were manufactured without seatbelts being 50s eras, early 60s eras cars. And I really hated doing it. A lot of times it's just lap belts. Oh, we're going to throw lap belts in this thing, which really aren't that good for you. You're still going to be tossed forward enough that the steering wheel's going to hurt your chest. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, so you really have to do a three-point belt. And then if you don't get the mounts exactly in the right spot, and when manufacturers do seat belts in modern-day production vehicles, I'm sure they're tried in hundreds of different little mounting points, maybe fractions of an inch different, to make sure it's kind of universally adaptable, where 
you buy a seatbelt kit for your 65 Mustang and you go, well, you're supposed to drill a hole here in the floor and a drill a hole here in the floor and you're done. And if you put that hole in the wrong spot, maybe you're more of a thigh belt. If you do it too far back, maybe you're pulling that belt up over somebody's abdomen rather than, you know, gripping around the pelvis. And it becomes a very dangerous thing and something even more dangerous than not having the seatbelt. It's a really, I have no problem retrofitting seatbelts into a vehicle that didn't have seatbelts that had seatbelts available as an option, which was quite common in the mid-60s. But adding them, I've always had, I've always had apprehensions about doing that. And then these people that go in and will go to a little bit more modern who love to stick their, you know, four-point or five-point racing harnesses in their streetcar, you guys are absolutely insane. You've made that a very unsafe car because if you don't have a roll cage, you have no business having a four-point harness that's going to hold you upright in the seat as that car rolls and that roof crushes. Yes, rollover standards have gotten better. People doing this to their Honda Civics and CRXs and their MR2s and uh, Fox Body Mustangs. Eh, you really have to. You really have to understand all of that. That com- those components work together, and it's not. Oh, I'm going to do this one thing, and I'm going to be better. If you do this one thing, you make something else worse. Yeah, exactly. And that's you know, I mean, even. I've got some more modern cars, right? The 61 Ford Falcon that I have. And again, I'm running the car as original. 144 cubic inch inline six, three-speed transmission, very, very bland base model car. Yeah, I still run everything as it was originally. I just make sure that they're rebuilt, they're functioning, everything in that car functions as it would have from the factory and the big thing to me is just you know i'm used to a lot of cars with mechanical brakes instead of hydraulic brakes the big trick for me is just remembering what vehicle i'm in and how it's going to react to certain driving situations you know a panic stop well you know you got to remember you're using drum brakes and no power assist and and all of those things mechanical brakes same thing you just remember what you're doing that's why i lean towards not upgrading the cars that i have uh in the way some people will but i can completely understand where building a hot rod uh, doing, you know, resto mods, which we all know how we feel about that term on this show, especially when Will joins us. We also have to look at the different aspects of the antique car world or the, the classic car world when people are updating their vehicles. And again, John, it kind of goes to what you were saying. It's not just, oh, this, <laughs> this system's better, so I'm going to put it in the car. There's a lot of engineering done in the automobile industry to build these vehicles and somebody simply going in and adding power disc brakes to their old drum brake car. There's a lot of things you have to think about when you're doing that, that affect all the other systems of that vehicle and how it operates. 
Yeah, that's where I was going to slide into breakup grades. You know, we've talked about seatbelts and kind of expressed our fears or displeasure or safety concerns with those. But you get, you know, we're going to go ahead and buy this Willwood or Brembo brake kit for my insert whatever car here. And you're going to all of a sudden, like you said, go from possibly four-wheel drum brakes to four-wheel disc brakes. With and you're, Now you're going to put 19-inch wheels or 20-inch wheels on this car so you can go to 17-inch rotors, put, you know, put a new master cylinder and power brakes and a whole new braking system on this car. But you do nothing else. Those brakes, yeah, are going to stop that car, but they're also going to overpower or potentially overpower a lot of your existing suspension components. The A-arms on that car, the the spindles, the ball joints. Yeah, they're sturdy, but they're not necessarily designed to work with, you know, say you're going 70 miles an hour, keep it legal there, and you have a panic stop and you slam on those brakes, they're not necessarily designed to bring that car to a stop in the now 128 feet, they were designed to bring that car to a stop in 210 feet, like the old brake system did. So you're adding a lot of new stresses to these parts. And they might work the first time or the second time. But every time that happens, you're adding additional wear and you're increasing the probability of failure on those parts. Now, if you just stick the brakes on your car and it's a trailer queen, and that situation never happens, yeah, you have at it. But what about the guy who buys the car off of you and goes, oh, I'm going to drive this thing? Everything on a car works in conjunction with something else, and you have to look at the whole system. Yeah, exactly. Again, kind of going back to it, you know, any upgrade that you do is impacting the engineering of the vehicle, be it... I mean, even think about if you're changing the carburetor on the car or something like that. Anything you do to the vehicle, you're impacting the way it was designed and the way it was intended to be driven. And I mean, if if you look at everything in the automotive world post-1970s, when we really start thinking more and more about safety in the auto industry and all of that, everything is engineered and developed to make sure that car is safe for that period of time. And when you, when you start adding all the upgrades and, and I, I think maybe it's just that a lot of people in the car world that are upgrading their cars, I don't know that they always think about safety. They might think that what they're doing is adding safety, but they don't stop and think about the greater ramifications of what they're doing. As you say, John, overstressing components, uh, yeah, with seatbelts, not getting them in the right position, actually being more dangerous than not wearing the seatbelt at all, all of those different things. I think the the key is when you go to do these things, put some thought behind it before you just go willy-nilly into it. I'm not saying, and I don't think John's saying, that this is 
that it's a bad idea to try to make your vehicle safer. It's about doing it in a way that actually does make it safer. It's about looking at the whole as a whole. A good example of what I'm talking about is a few years ago, and it's still in some cultures, putting 24, 26, 28, 32, 36-inch wheels on your car. And you take your Caprice, you know, your mid, your late 80s Caprice, and you lift it, and you put these massive wheels on it, and you look through the wheels, and there's these stinky little 8-inch brake rotor. That wheel, the inertia created by it, those brakes, no, even though they work fine on the car with its 14-inch wheels and tires or its 15-inch wheels and tires, will not stop that car properly if it even really stops, especially in a panic situation. You put the big wheels on it, you've obviously got to put money into the lift kit, and then you've got to put a proper lift kit on it. And then, you know, then you add the proper shocks and everything. And then you have to upgrade the brakes to make sure the thing stops just because of the inertia of those wheels. Or like when I started lowering pickup trucks, we never thought about pinion angle. And this isn't necessarily Mm -hmm. a safety thing, but it's a wear thing that creates additional mechanical issues in the future. But over the years, pinion angle became correct. I mean, you lift, you raise the wheels up or lower the body, whatever, six or eight inches on the back, that drive shaft changes and it makes a drive shaft shorter or if you lift and longer. And you have to make sure that it's not putting undue stresses on the rear, rear end gears or the transmission gears. And that, that's why you adjust that pinion angle just a little bit to try to keep that distance the same i've said it five times probably in this show you do one thing to a car it affects many other things down the line and you've got to look at that even if you change change your head unit and your car stereo you have to look at especially in a modern car does that affect the gps does that affect your uh, keyless entry does that affect the climate control system some of all you know, a lot of this all runs through the same system. And you don't just remove the old system, you shove that old system back and put your new thing in. Everything is so proprietary now. But if we go back, you know, go to my late 80s CRXs, which weren't very complicated cars, but if you start adding amplifiers, and I was running three and 4,000 watts of car, car amplifiers, you have to upgrade the alternator. And then you might want to consider changing the alternator belt from the stock one to something a little bit more heavy duty because that alternator is working harder. And then you've got to upgrade the battery and then you need to consider upgrading uh, some of the wiring and the grounds in the car and every little thing rolls into something else. And Well, I want to jump in because you've already you know, touched on some things that, that I want to go back on and you know you were talking about lifting your vehicle putting bigger tires on or lowering it and and you know doing all that and changing drive shaft angles and pinion angles and and all those things and you know you kind of said well it might not be a safety thing but 
really in the end, it's, it's all kind of safety because any undue wear on the vehicle, you could have a major failure on the roadway, which causes an unsafe situation for yourself or people around you. You throw a drive shaft because you don't have your pinion angle right. Who knows what could happen? I mean, yeah, if you're, you're not going at a high rate of speed, it's going to make a lot of noise and dent a lot of things under the car and bang things up, but you never know what could happen. You know, the other thing that's, that's very kind of in my, in my mind, basic, but some people forget about when you do change the size of that wheel, be it going to a smaller wheel, a larger wheel, anything like that. I grew up in rural America, you know, farm town in Michigan. And most of us were in some way interested in lifted four wheel drive off-road trucks, right? Well, one thing a lot of guys don't think about, or a lot of people don't think about when you do that and you lift the vehicle and you change the the wheel size and all these things, something as simple as calibrating your speedometer because you have changed the speed at which those wheels turn because they're larger or smaller than the factory wheels that the factory calibrated your speedometer for. The ratio becomes off. So now, even in something as simple as that, you don't actually know how fast you're going in reality. Yes, it's only going to be a couple miles an hour likely, but it's still, as you say, John, every little thing you do impacts some other function of the vehicle. Other than uh, the one example that popped in my head was you can change the seat covers in your interior and likely not impact a lot of other safety features in the vehicle. I'll go right real quick on that one. Wrong. If you put seat covers on your car and you have airbags that are built into the seat, you have now hindered their... I was talking about old cars. (laughs) You have now hindered their operation. Your speedometer is a very crucial thing. You know, oh, yeah, how, you know, I know that I need to adjust this, but let's go back to my uh, 2003 S10 that I had a drop kit on and I originally bought um, Krager SS wheels for, uh, they might have been, oh, no, they were American Racing Torque Thrust Twos, basically the same style. And it came on these much smaller tires. So overall, the outer, diameter of the wheel is different. So when I'm driving, technically, if it says 55, I'm probably going because the wheel's turning much faster than what the vehicle's actually doing. Okay, big deal. I can add five miles an hour to my speedometer. But also, I drive a lot. That adds a tremendous amount of miles to the car, which impacts value at some point. It also impacts you use up your warranty quicker to stay within warranty. You've got to do your oil changes more often and all these little things where a $20 adapter in this case would have fixed the problem. We had Matt D'Andrea on the show a few weeks ago and we got talking about, and we, I'm going to say electric cars, we got talking about modifying electric vehicles because one of his newest acquisitions is one of the new electric Ford Lightnings. Now, Matt also has an original first-generation Ford Lightning. He's all about Ford and Ford performance. And we were talking about modifying it, and he said he was afraid kind of to modify that vehicle because electric's going to take it to the extreme. When he changed the wheels and tires, he said, I might change the wheels, but they're going to be the exact 
same size wheel with the exact same size offset. And he said, I probably would not change the tires because those tires are specifically designed for that vehicle. And then it helps ensure that the outer diameter is exactly the same and everything works because the computers are programmed to work that way. And they're programmed not only for the speedometer, not only for the odometer, they're programmed for the traction control, the ABS, the tire pressure sensors. There's just so many aspects of a vehicle that are tied to wheel and tire size now that has to be addressed and has to be looked at. Um, you know, people are modifying their Lightnings and their Teslas and insert whatever electric vehicle you want here. But definitely, as we get into newer vehicles and anything in the last decade is so computer controlled, you really have to look at the issues that will creep in and be, you know, be effective. You've got to understand every little thing that is being read off that, like I said, where are your airbags at in the car? If you change your door cards, are you going to affect the the airbag? Are you going to accidentally set it off while you're installing something? There's all these little you know, safety concerns that don't even necessarily come down to driving. And Derek reminded me of the dangers of a drive shaft. Yeah, if your drive shaft falls off the differential, not a big deal. You drag it. Your drive shaft breaks at the you know, front U-joint breaks up at the transmission. You've just now invented an Olympic sport kind of related to pole vaulting with your vehicle. It becomes really, really exciting when that drive shaft digs in and launches the rear of the vehicle. So I did make a mistake earlier in saying, eh, there's not a safety concern. There is a safety concern. That's me covering a bunch of topics really quickly there. <laughs> yeah, well, and I think, you know, for me, and I think for a lot of the people that I know in the, especially the antique car community, and I think it needs to be something we just recognize in the antique and classic car community as a whole is we love these vehicles, but we have to accept the fact that they are just not as safe as modern vehicles. And they never truly will be. Even if you hot rod one, even if you, you know, put all kinds of new equipment into it and say, you know, big oak garage, you have Will Posey build you a brand new hot rod that, you know, he is so famous for. That car is still not as safe as a vehicle coming out of one of the big auto manufacturers today. And, you know, I have a number of friends in the hobby that, you know, there, there's two sides to it. I, I know the guys that say, oh, man, they just they don't make cars like they used to. And I have friends on the other side of that that say, yeah, you're right. They don't make cars like they used to. And that's a good thing because cars just were not safe back in the day. We have evolved and adapted and improved the automobile to be as safe as it is today. I'm all for making your vehicle safer than it may have been. 
but you have to do it in the right way. And always accept that you're never going to be as safe in an old car as you are in a modern vehicle. Very, very true. And I'm not going to dive down the path. I'm going to hint at it, but I'm not going to dive down the path of you've got to be very concerned about where your aftermarket pieces are coming from, who's manufacturing them. Because while, and I'm going to use an example going back, again, 15 or 20 years, a carbon fiber hood from reputable manufacturer, say Mugen in Honda's case, is probably a very decent modification but it's going to be a very expensive piece of carbon fiber. If you buy the cheap Southeastern Asian company knockoff carbon fiber hood that is a third of the price, there was an issue actually at one time where these hoods were too stiff. They had no crumple zones in them. So if you were in an accident that involved the front, front end collision, if you rear-ended somebody, if you had a head-on collision... These hoods would not buckle the way hoods are designed to buckle. They would become guillotines and come straight through the windshield at you. And hundreds of people, but people would be decapitated in these instances because you're buying inferior aftermarket parts. Again, you have to look at everything. There's a reason certain parts are more expensive than others. There's certain there's reasons there are solid manufacturers out there. I mean, you take um, billet wheels were very popular at one point in time where you take a chunk of billet, you put it on your CNC, and you carve out a wheel. And stuff like that's still available. But you want to buy that from a wheel company that's tested the design and stress-tested for, I guess, rolling resistance. Well, I say rolling resistance. They don't come apart when they're spinning at 70 miles an hour. Or they don't flex when you take a corner. I mean, anybody who's got 30 grand to buy themselves a Haas CNC machine or 80 grand can make their own set of wheels, but that doesn't necessarily mean they're safe for the road. That's why the real wheel manufacturers and our previous guest, Tony Watley, he has a wheel company called DV8Motoring.com, and that's using an eight in the DV8. And his wheels are four, six, eight thousand dollars a set plus. Actually, I don't even think he has got $4,000 a wheel. They're, they're ex- very expensive wheels, but they're very good wheels. They don't come apart. They, the spokes don't shear. There's lots of pictures on the forums and that. So, again, when it comes to even just, you know, safety in your vehicle, you have to really pay attention to the entire thing, the car, the manufacturer, you're not going to go down the road to your local cobbler and have them make you a new set of spokes for your wood wheel car, wooden wheel car. You're going to go to somebody who's made thousands of spokes for cars before because of the stress and understanding wood grain, you know, the manufacturing process to make sure that everything is the way it should be. I mean, anybody can chunk a log up on a lathe and make a spoke for a wooden wheel car. Like I said, is the grain going the right direction? Is it the right wood? Is it treated properly? Is it completely solid or is there a wormhole that we're not seeing? 
Yeah, right. Well, right there, John, I was going to jump in when you were talking about, you know, billet wheels and that, but you mentioned a little bit ago as well with the hoods, but you've, you've got to think about the company that's doing this work. You know, you mentioned Tony's DV8, uh, you know, wheels. Yeah. If you've got the machine, you can get a chunk of billet, you can throw it in, you can make up your own wheels, man. Isn't that cool? Where did that chunk of billet come from? Is it a reputable manufacturer of billets of aluminum or is it an inferior quality? Is it the right alloy? Is it all of the things that go into manufacturing a component of a vehicle and then manufacturing all of those components into a vehicle? That's all figured out. It, no matter what era of vehicle we're talking about. Okay, maybe not, okay, maybe a, a one-off built in the 1870s or 80s. You know, they were trying to figure it out. But my 1919 Chevy 490 Touring, there was a lot of engineering and figuring out how all those components went together to build that vehicle and make it do what it was supposed to do. Was there as much engineering then as today? No, not even close. But they made sure that at the time, the manufacturers they were getting their components from made quality products and put that together. It, you know, as you were saying again a little bit ago, John, you have to think about quality in everything you do as you're upgrading your vehicle. As we've already said, you know, you change one thing, you have to change a whole bunch of other things. But if one of those things you change is inferior quality, then you've just negated everything you've done because you've put a component on that is going to lead to failure. And I'll admit, when I first got into the restoration industry, one of the first cars I ever touched was a 1930 Packard. But I was saying, it's a 1930s car. How accurate can the measurements be? And I was a reassembling the suspension and you putting putting the leaf springs and stuff on this chassis. And there were these pins that went through to you know hold the leaf springs on. And we painted them and they had a coat of paint on them. And I didn't think anything had taken the paint off. There's gotta be that much play. No, though you had to we had to take you know, you had to strip the paint off and get these things back down to bare metal. And they were an extremely close tolerance fit. Take into account painting even brake drums on a wood wheel car like Derek has, or painting brake drums on any car, or painting the hat. If that paint wears, which it will, that wheel will now become loose because when you originally did your torque, it was allowing for those few thousandths of an inch of paint. But as that paint wears, that wheel becomes loose without ever touching anything. You can't assume anything when it comes to an automobile and safety. There's a reason for everything. Somebody explained to me once about you can say it's a two-cent washer or a three-cent washer on a car. And why is it there? It doesn't matter why it's there. It's there and it needs to go back there. Why? It's only a three-cent part. But I love economies of scale. When you're going to build this same car over 
I don't know. I think in this case, it was a Dodge van. So over 20 years, and you're going to put that washer on 15 million cars, that three cents adds up to a good chunk of money. And they could have used that half a million dollars somewhere else. And you know damn well if they didn't have to spend that half a million dollars, they wouldn't have spent the money. So no matter how minuscule the part is, how old the vehicle is, no matter what you think, they had dial calipers back in the 1800s. They have them today, and they were extremely, extremely accurate. I think it really emphasizes what I've said multiple times and Derek said multiple times. Everything matters when it comes to the safety of an automobile. And even if you're willing to take the risk yourself, oh, I'm willing to run the risk of that drive shaft coming apart, or I'm willing to run the risk of the seatbelt, you know, injuring me in an accident. What about the other person? You know, you want to have a seatbelt because, oh, it's cool to have seatbelts. Or, you know, somebody said I should have seatbelts. My wife wanted me to have seatbelts. Now, research it and explain to her why. Because do you want to put your wife in that car that you put these seatbelts in and you've done it wrong and you've killed her in an accident because either she's trapped in the vehicle, as Derek says, on the early cars, or because you've destroyed her internal organs and cracked some ribs because you mounted the seatbelts in the wrong place on a newer car. Or you put them in and they pull through the floor because you didn't use the right washer setup or pick a piece of metal that was thick enough where they were mounted to. Just a lot a lot of things to consider. We don't mean to scare you. I don't mean to be a fear monger. But it's just, these are thought points that Derek and I over you know, our 50, 60 plus combined years in this industry have seen these mistakes made have went back and repaired these mistakes, have tried to explain to people why you shouldn't do these things. This is just us imparting some of this to you. Again, like I said, not being fear-mongering, but look at the entire picture. They say a picture is worth a thousand words. There's a thousand little points in that picture that you you have to know every word in that picture when you're trying to change one aspect of it. Yeah, and you you talk about always thinking about the other person. Okay. We think about ourselves. Obviously I, within the last few years have become a dad. We've had the kids now for coming up on four years and I don't have car seats in any of the early vehicles yet. Why? Because I'm still trying to figure out the safest way to do it so that the kids are as safe as they can possibly be when they're in the car with me. Because I don't want anything to happen to those kids. And it's going to take me a while. And and maybe by the time I figure it out, they won't need car seats. And that would be wonderful. <laughs> because I'm really struggling to even think about putting the car seats in, say, the 490 Touring car. Because... By law, those those car seats have to be belted into the the car. And as John said earlier, what are the proper mounting points within that automobile to make sure those car seats are going to stay where they need to stay? 
and not come out. But then also on the other side of it, do I want the kids to stay with the car or do I want them to be ejected from the car? So is there a different mounting point that would allow the car seats to be ejected from the car? Sounds terrible. Sounds terrible. But keep the kids safer than if they were staying with the vehicle. Derek, let me just throw after your thought process on that. It's something I never thought of as car seats in an older vehicle. I know Volvo had an issue a few years back where they designed a car seat that was extremely, extremely safe, but it only fit in Volvos. So they couldn't get it certified for use in the United States because U.S. law states that a car seat needs to be universally adaptable to all vehicles. But now we're coming into, you're saying, you know, your 1919 Chevy, you're, you know, if you get your Huntmobile back on the road or you buy something, buy yourself a Model T, you know, a friend comes over and you want to go for a ride in a Model T or something, what do you do? Well, I think what we need to do is we need to look at Mork and Mindy. And you come up and you build this carbon fiber egg that you insert the child in, and then you put all this bubble wrap around him, and then you shut the door, and it can have a little window that they look out, maybe a little vent hole so they get some of that cool breeze. And then when you crash, the egg just goes bouncing away. But it, since it's carbon fiber, it's not going to be like Humpty Dumpty. And all the king's horses and all the king's men, you know, don't have to worry about putting them back together again. You don't look like you like that idea. You might, you might have some. No, no, no. I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm thinking you might have something here. I maybe, maybe I need to start a uh, a business figuring out how to make car seats for antique vehicles that are safe. But here's where your issue is going to be. It has to be adaptable to every vehicle. Now, where I might go is go into Target and buy yourself the most elaborate Safeco or whatever. I don't I don't have children, so I don't know brands. Car seat. And then contact the U.S. government and say, this isn't a universal fit. It doesn't fit my 1919 Chevrolet. They need to take it off the market. Hmm. That could be fun. <laughs> <laughs> They'd probably come take all my antique cars away and be like, you put your kids in these? <laughs> They're now ours. Yeah, that, that's what, that's exactly where the legislation would go. They wouldn't fix the car seat. They would just remove the problem. Exactly. They'd be like, oh, thank you for pointing out that old cars are unsafe for small children. Uh, we're going to ban them even more. <laughs> I, I guess you go back to everything I learned, you know, I either got from Star Trek or the Sopranos. And you're a problem, so we'll just eliminate the problem. Yes. <laughs> well, have we dwelled on safety enough and... Preach to the poor listeners. I hope so. Enough for uh, one episode. I hope so. I mean, it's hey, we brought up we brought up everything that listeners love: children, safety, electric cars. This is this is a dr episode made in heaven, is it not? Only if you get in a wreck in one of your antique vehicles, then it'll be made in heaven. Sorry, was that was that too too somber of an ending note? <laughs> if you've enjoyed this episode and you know somebody with an antique car or has modified their car in a way that may be unsafe and you think somebody would be enlightened with this, please share it. 
It's the best thing you can do for the podcast to help it grow. Go ahead and share this episode. Encourage We encourage you to subscribe if you're not subscribing. We encourage you to stay tuned. It happened on this day, our new daily sub five-minute podcast. Nice, quick, easy thing. That's it for me the, today. I've preached enough. I've made mistakes. I've corrected my mistakes. Or Derek has forced me to correct my mistakes. But It's what I'm here for, John. There anything you need to you would like to wrap up with, Derek? Just to remind everybody that safety is paramount with antique vehicles. Make sure you're being safe. Make sure other people are safe. Keep listening to no driving gloves. Take a break right now as you get off your ass to go burn some gas and listen to no driving gloves while you do that. Because John is out. This show was a part of the No Driving Gloves Network, produced and edited by John Viviani of Magic City Podcast, with voice work by Gary Conger. So until the next exit.